0: Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Uderian. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. So glad you're joining me today, whether you're on a run, you're in the car, during your commute, maybe you're at the gym. Or maybe you're just at the supermarket listening, trying to weave that massive shopping cart among those tiny, narrow little aisles with like five people on each side, and you really wish you just would have grabbed the little handbasket instead. Regardless, so glad you're with me. And please forgive the, uh, the slight randomness at the top. But today on the podcast, I've got Andrew Henderson from nomadcapitalist.com, whose, whose mission is to find the best places to live, to start a business and to invest. And originally, I wanted to bring Andrew on to talk about really how to structure your business legally, especially if you're in the United States, how if it's location independent, you could potentially legally avoid taxes. Nothing sketchy here, nothing outside the law, but advantageous corporate structures. And we touched on that, but we really talk a lot more about the e-commerce landscape internationally and opportunities abroad if you're in the U.S. or in other countries. So, it's an interesting discussion, and you'll probably notice in a lot of what Andrew says, he's, he's pretty pessimistic about the future, especially uh, from a US perspective. And, and I think the US definitely has some big challenges coming in the future. Not sure if I'm quite as pessimistic as he is to the level he is, but he does have some interesting, uh, interesting insights and makes for a great discussion regardless. So, stick around for that. Before we dive in, though, I want to do a first sale shout out. And this one's going out to Destiny Ray from harperandhadley.com. And Destiny writes in, I'm 25 years old and have been an avid listener of your show for the past four months. Every time I hear you do a first sale shout out, I get even more motivated to reach my goal. Well, I launched four hours ago and I'm already on my first sale. I am beyond elated. Thank you so much for helping me reach that first goal. Really appreciate it. Well, Destiny, well done, first, on a four-hour launch to gold. That's phenomenal. And secondly, your website, I mean, I think your website is one of, if not the best-looking uh, websites I've seen that just comes out of the gate for for kind of a, a fairly new independent merchants. It's just it's beautiful, uh, fantastic clothing. The photography is top-notch. I can see why you made... Uh, a sale in the first four hours. It's very well done. So congratulations on that and best of luck. Please stay in touch. Let me know how you're doing in the next six months or so. would love to hear back from you. Let's go ahead and dive into today's discussion with Andrew on e-commerce opportunities abroad. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. You've got expertise in a lot of areas I'm excited to dive into, so appreciate the time. My pleasure, Andrew. So one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on was to talk about how e-commerce entrepreneurs with location-independent models, specifically those in the United States can reduce their tax burden by potentially either incorporating abroad or just leaving the country for a certain amount of time. But as we both know, the U.S. has a pretty complex and a pretty draconian you know, tax code, especially for people earning income outside the U.S. So is it possible to avoid and reduce taxes on an e-commerce business that's serving U.S.-based customers for merchants if you're outside the U.S.? And if so, how would you do that or think about taking advantage of that?
1: Now, I'm not a tax advisor, I work with tax lawyers. I have some of the best offshore guys in my rat pack, as it were. But there are basically two ways to avoid income tax uh, legally under Section know, one of them is foreign uh, earned income exemption, which is where you just spend a lot of time outside of the United States. And I've talked to some tax advisors. Again, I'm not one of them. They have said, you know, you could potentially run a business as a sole proprietor. You could you know do a lot of different things as long as you're physically out of the country 330 days a year or actually you spend 35 or fewer days in the United States in any 365 day period then you can exempt yourself from up to roughly $100,000 in income tax roughly $200,000 if you're married beyond that is where you get into more complicated tax planning and and offshore companies and things like that which is what we talk about at Nomad Capitalist how you can set that stuff up to you know make sure that you're getting the best tax advantages it it really comes on a case by case basis because especially online people just figure i can just get any offshore corporation off the shelf you know spend 800 bucks from some guy with a website and i'll be great well again the united states has the most aggressive most draconian tax enforcement on planet earth i know people who live and work and run businesses from california and the franchise tax board has you know makes the irs look like you know a bunch of puppy dogs <laughs> I mean, so a lot of people in the United States, they need real professional help. And so there are ways to set up offshore corporations. You know, it's better if you live overseas. I mean, really, if you're earning money, you want to be outside of the United States.
0: and Andrew, just to maybe dive into what you said at the beginning, you talked about kind of the foreign earned income credit. So let's just yep. take, for example, let's say you've got somebody who's got a good solid e-commerce business going. Let's say they're married, so they're eligible for that $200,000 exemption. They spend most of the time outside the U.S. If you do do that, is it possible... You know, obviously if you're working let's say you're in Hong Kong and you're generating income from Hong Kong customers, right. that makes sense. I think a lot of e-commerce merchants, I know a lot of dropshippers and, and I believe a lot of like payment processors, they require, you know, a US based EIN number to do business with them. If you try to drop ship for them or buy from them and you have a Hong Kong corporation, they're gonna say, Hey, sorry, we need a US EIN number. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is it possible to be able to set up a US business somehow and also you know, while you're abroad, that still allows you to take advantage of that, you know, foreign earned income exemption. I guess ultimately what I'm asking is if you have a US based business that's incorporated in the United States, because it has to be to service, to be able to have some of those uh, connections with merchants and, and suppliers and, and people like that, can you still take advantage of that foreign earned income tax by either setting up a company and then paying yourself? Like maybe you set up a, an LLC and it just pays you a salary, which you can then, you know, use as that, that uh, foreign income credit. Uh, Does that make sense? I'm just trying to see how you would actually structure that and if it's possible.
1: And I don't want to not answer your, uh, your question again. I mean, this is what, you know, if you're doing the work overseas, where's the work being done? You know, if you're in Hong Kong, you're doing work then you know, basically if you're abiding by the, the terms of being outside the United States, that that's the basic premise of what they're looking for is that you're in the United States, you're doing work outside of the United States, that's the issue. You know, Beyond that, it really comes down to what are all the, the specifics of your situation? Can it be done? I suspect from the people I've talked to that it can. And that's the challenge that's happening right now in the world where you have these companies based in the United States. I've dealt with them myself. It's mind boggling. They don't understand that there's other countries in the world. Other countries have programs. I mean, I, I had to talk to American Express one time because it's like I had to call. My assistant couldn't call. I had to call them about something in Hong Kong. And they're like, oh, yeah, what's your EIN number? I said, you know, there's no IRS in Hong Kong. I mean, it's, it's a U.S. internal revenue service. So, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you get around that? Obviously, I would look at can you have a company in the U.S. Can you have a company overseas? The company overseas perhaps owns a U.S. entity. I mean, again, these, these are really you know tax questions, and it really is situation specific. I hate to uh, to keep saying that. You know, everyone will need something different, but the, but in terms of foreign earned income exclusion, you know, the basic thing is you need to be outside of the United States, and if you're running a business, your servers should be outside of the United States.
0: Okay, so so I guess in terms of structure, and I, and I know I hate to harp on this because I know it does differ from everyone, but would it be, obviously you could see a lot of people with interesting... Interesting structures, and I know you can't comment broadly probably huh? because it's it's just, again, it's, it's too specific of a, of a thing for each business. But potentially, could you set up, say, an LLC in the United States that had not yeah-yeah number, really was the U.S. entity, to connect with those suppliers there? Set it up as maybe an S-corp where you pay yourself, as the owner, you pay yourself a salary, let's say a, a very generous salary, up to $200,000, something like that. But you were abroad for most of the year. And so if you did do that, could you potentially set that up where... That would allow you to take advantage of you know that tax credit. Have you seen any any structures like that for any individuals? Yeah.
1: Potentially, I mean, I would you know try and talk to someone and see if you could set up something where you look at some of the most successful offshore companies, people who use these kinds of very complex structures: Google, Apple, Starbucks, you know, Microsoft. They're moving money all around the world. Now, they have an advantage that you, I, and, and your listeners probably don't in that they have real tangible IP trademarks, et cetera, that they can, you know, Microsoft Ireland can say, hey, we're billing Microsoft United States, you know, this much money for the ability to use the, the term Microsoft. You know, if you have something that's lesser known, you may not be able to and likely aren't able to get away with that. So I think that the, the point of, you know, of a U.S. structure is how can you effectively integrate that with other Structures. The problem I that I've talked to is, you know, and not being a U.S. tax guys. I talked to my tax guys that I work with in the U.S., and they say the salary thing is really going away. That the IRS is really starting to crack down on that. That's just what they're telling me. I, I, you know, I can't speak to their expertise, but I mean, look, the IRS is making it more and more difficult to accomplish many of these things. I mean, they don't want you to pay yourself a salary. They want you to pay tax on the entire, you know, profits of of a US LLC. And they'd like you to do it on any foreign company as well. Unfortunately, they, they can't entirely control some of those things. So, you know, how do you get money from a US LLC? You know, how do you integrate that with foreign structures? That's, I think, the, uh, the important question. And it really depends on what the structure is. But do know the IRS, they need money. There's $20 trillion almost in debt in the United States. When you look at the unfunded liabilities, it's actually $100 trillion. They need money. So, I mean, they're coming up with every facocta way by hook or by crook to try and get money. And if the question is, can I do this with a US LLC? the answer is it's going to be more and more and more difficult, which is why setting this stuff up, I think, is important.
0: So I guess it's a couple of questions. You know, if someone is is at that level, let's say they're making uh, let's say they have a business that makes a couple hundred thousand dollars per year in profit. One yes. is is it with the complexity with the additional crackdown the US is is making on US citizens who have foreign bank accounts, who have foreign corporations. It's getting, you know, much more regulation for having to report those for complying with those a lot of banks internationally are being less likely and more hesitant to take on u.s uh, citizens because of that is it even worth somebody with a business making you know low six figures to think about incorporation and then secondly if so where does someone find a tax person who's really knowledgeable about this stuff i mean i've got a accountant here in the u.s and obviously he does a good job but he just i don't think he'd have any idea about this and i think it's really hard to find people who will talk about it so i guess two-part question what do you think
1: well, one thing that I do, I mean, I have, I mentioned my private club and we just do dinners all around the world. I just had a dinner in uh, Vancouver at the Shangri-La hotel. And we had people who come And One guy's doing real estate all over Panama. One guy is investing you know tens of millions of dollars in the UK. I mean, we've got some real solid members, but in addition to all the events we do every year and the meet and greets, we also have a, an online area where I put people in touch with my Rolex. So obviously I mean, I've got guys who are the tax guys. I've got the, the lawyers, and, and then they, you know, they can help people there. Unfortunately, you know, they say, Andrew, don't put up my information on the Internet because I'm, I'm already busy. I mean, my, my in-house counsel is the best offshore guy out there. I can barely get him on the phone, let alone telling, you know, 100,000 people on my website to try and flood him with calls. But, you know, as to how do you um, – I said I wouldn't do this because I, I do these all the time. Give me the first part. I was missing the first
0: part, Oh, that's please. right. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have given you a 10-part question. I was just wondering, is it worth, I mean, what's that threshold where yep. in terms of profit, I kind of use 200K or 100 to 200K roughly. Let's say you're making six figures, low six figures in profit for an established e-commerce business. Where does it make sense to start thinking about this given the complexities and the increased regulation? Where is the, the amount you could potentially save roughly, the amount you could potentially save in taxes worth all the hassle you're probably going to have to go through to set something up like this?
1: Well, I mean, the first step is, I mean, again, if you set it up properly with your tax guy, I mean, you can move. And, and even if you're single, $100,000, I mean, what's the tax on $100,000? Depending on where you live in California, for instance, then I mean, it could be, what, forty grand. Now, if you don't have an offshore structure and you're just taking the money personally, then you're going to be responsible for med-fica taxes. So, okay, you know, 15.3% up to the, the Social Security cap. So you're not completely wiping out that, but you are wiping out the income tax on that first roughly $100,000. Look, for me, if I don't live in a country, and I don't want to live in the United States. I spend very little time in the country. Um, it's just, it's not a fit for me. And that's a personal thing, but I I don't want to pay any money. I don't want to pay money to a country I don't, I don't live in. So, I mean, for me, just being able to say, you know what, I'm going to use that foreign earned uh, income exemption and I don't care if I make 30 grand. I mean, look, you can live like a king in some places or at least, you know, approaching a king on 30 grand and if you just had to pay, you know, a minimal amount of tax, to me that's worth it. When you get up to the 100, 200 grand level, I think that maybe what you're getting at is that there are people who are trying to actually make less money because they don't want to deal with the nonsense. And I mean, that's a personal question, I think. Look, here's the fact that nobody wants to hear, and some people will say it's crazy, some people will totally understand. The United States has made it pretty much impossible for you to be globally competitive, for you to start a business and live around the world or, or run a global business, they've made it impossible in so many different ways. But in the tax and the regulatory sense, they have basically had what friends of mine call an IRS discount. You don't get the same advantages that all of your competitors overseas get. And so, I mean, ultimately, if you're going to make half a million dollars a year doing drop shipping and you don't want to live here, you know, you should figure out where can I get a second passport? Can I get an Irish passport, Italian passport, Polish, Greek, Lithuanian because I have ancestors from there? Do I want to invest some money and, and buy a, a passport through a citizenship program? Do I want to go and live in Panama for five years and then they'll give me one after that or Uruguay for four years or you know Singapore if I'm really running a big business? They'll, they'll let me in and then potentially renouncing your U.S. citizenship and just being done with all of it because let me tell you yeah. – The Lithuanian government doesn't really care what you're doing if you don't live in Lithuania. So, I mean, that's the ultimate goal. If you're going to make real good money and you don't want to live in the U.S., find somewhere you want to live, get another passport. And look, it's a very personal decision to renounce your citizenship. But I think you're going to see more and more successful people doing that.
0: Is that something you've personally done? Were you a U.S. citizen or are you? And is that something that's in your background?
1: Well, I don't talk specifically about other passports. I will say that I, there's one that I qualify for that would require relinquishment. And I'm kind of taking that on a step-by-step basis right now and figuring out you know what I want to do, not because I'm in love with, with U.S. citizenship, but just because of some of the, the other implications of that pretty good passport that I qualify for. But, I mean, there are plenty of them out there that you can get you know, and not have to renounce. I mean, I have a friend whose grandparents are Irish. And their grandparents are Italian, two generations back. There are two passports he can get. He's actually having a child in about a month. That child can qualify for Irish-Italian citizenship. So, you know, how that plays into this equation is, I mean, look at Eduardo Savrin. Here's a guy who was born in Brazil. You know, the Facebook guy came to the U.S. and expatriated to go to Singapore to save money on all the, all the future taxes he would have had to pay. He still got a big tax bill, but he said, it's not worth it because I'm going to make so much money. I want to go somewhere where I'm respected. And so you know, if you live in Hong Kong or Singapore and you don't make money in Hong Kong or Singapore, you pay zero.
0: Right, cause, and just a little bit of background, because you're saying because if you renounce your citizenship and you have over roughly $2 million in assets, I'm yes. guessing there's an exit tax you have to yes. pay. Okay, right. But you are, so, you are currently – that, That's a, a, why
1: if you're just a high earner and you're a young person, you're saying, listen – let me just give you an example, Andrew. I meet dozens of guys, I think like your listeners, who are living in Vietnam – Thailand, uh, Malaysia, all these, you know, especially in Southeast Asia, some in, in Europe and they're like, I love it here. This is where I want to be. I'm not going to go back. I mean, the cost of living is cheap. The weather's fantastic. You know, the women are nice, whatever. And you know, they're looking at, you know, with their million dollar businesses, they're looking at doing this because it's like, there's no benefit to, you know, to keeping that passport.
0: And so I have to ask, Andrew, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, um, you're not a big fan of the U.S. in the future and, and mm-hmm. see a lot of opportunities other places and advocate of a foreign residency. But it sounds like you are a U.S. citizen still. So what is it that is making you keep that citizenship? Like, what are those things that, you know, I guess, why haven't you renounced your citizenship yet, given all of the tax advantages you would have and the limited number of time you spend in the country right now?
1: Well, I think there's a certain, I mean, there's a certain personal reasons. We won't go on all of them. I and mean, I'm a you know, I'm a single guy, you know, certainly, um, I'm evaluating the passports that, uh, I could qualify for, you know, instantly, you know, what are the pros and cons of, uh, of, those I'm working with my lawyers on those. And I, you know, look, I may be, uh, you know, I may change my opinion in the near future. You know, I think that I would never tell someone you have to renounce your citizenship. It's a personal thing. You know, I don't so much, uh, look at it as, as an emotional thing. Cause I'm not a big uh, nationalist. You know, I, I was just, like I said, in Canada and, A bunch of guys who were there who were speaking were American and Canadian dual nationals. There's obviously a difference in the countries, but no difference in the passports. If you can get a Canadian passport, you know, you should do that immediately. British passport, do that immediately. You know, obviously when it comes to, hey, the only other passport you can get is in Paraguay, you know, you want to be a little bit careful to make sure that you understand exactly what's going on. that's what I'm doing right now and and evaluating the different options, so –
0: I'd love to talk about foreign opportunities because you've obviously, you're well-traveled, you're on the ground quite a bit looking at uh, investment opportunities and business opportunities. We'd love to take a couple different looks at the foreign opportunities in different slices. But the first one I'd love to hear from is is what do you see in terms of like on the ground business opportunities, not passive things, not investments, not stock markets or bank accounts, but places where you think, hey, there's a lot of opportunity for someone to hustle, to come on the ground, to start a business. And, you know, obviously in general, but specifically if there's any places where you think there's a lot of opportunity in the e-commerce and retail markets internationally, what do you see there?
1: Well, yeah, and it's interesting. I, mean, I think maybe perhaps one of the first opportunities, although I, I believe, from my limited knowledge, that's probably a complicated platform, is is someone to do drop shipping overseas. I mean, because to say that all the companies are in the U.S. and they all live within this American paradigm, it seems a bit silly. I mean, look at places like Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong is in existence because it's basically a pass through for goods. Stuff comes through mainland China, it goes through the tax haven of Hong Kong. People invoice it out to Europe, and stuff goes right through the, the ports in Hong Kong, and, and uh, it's tax free. And it's one of the biggest places in the world where people are doing that. So I think there's a lot of commerce opportunities in places like that. In terms of on the ground opportunities in retail, I mean, I love simple businesses. I talk to people all around the world. I was in Montenegro last month. I got invited on a yacht with some of these guys who are coming in and investing. You know, we have people who are mega millionaires in our club who are running businesses. And everything they're doing is simple. You know, we have a guy who is is investing in um, parking lots. I love that. That's pretty much what I've done most of my career. And so I go to these countries. Yeah, I mean, retail, you could open, I mean, just heck, you could open a store in some of these places. I mean, talk about e-commerce as more and more people in southeast asia get credit cards you know set up something to where you're selling just any kind of product practically i'll give you an example i was in laos a little country in southeast asia they were talking about there's for makeup for example there's one store that's a shades store it's like four times the price of bangkok And so people, some of the women will drive to the Thai border with Udantani. I think there's a few stores there by the airport. Some will fly to Bangkok every once in a while. They'll buy their stuff and then they'll come back. But, you know, do they really want to fly to Bangkok to buy their makeup? No, but they're not going to pay four times the price. So obviously there are different customs things in place there, but it's not a four times markup on on government tax. It's a four times markup because those people are too scared to enter the market. I think that there's an opportunity to bundle some of those different retail concepts together in an online thing, not necessarily to collect credit card information but simply to take orders and uh, even deliver them. Why even bother with a store? Just get a guy in a motorcycle for $200 a month and he drops the stuff off. Obviously there are security issues and complications you'd have to work out as in any business, but I think in places like Cambodia, Laos, etc., there are goods that they want that if you could import them and figure out a model to getting them to people and possibly in you know just skipping a storefront and going online, you could be pretty successful.
0: Have you spent much time in India? I know a lot of people look at India and e-commerce isn't, e-commerce is, is a really small percentage. I think it's like 2% or less of, uh, um, don't quote me on that, but I think it's you know obviously very small relative to, to commerce in general. And I know a lot of people look at that and see obviously all the opportunity, but also anyone who's been to India knows that it's the infrastructure and just the way things are done is much more chaotic maybe than in a lot of other developed countries where obviously e-commerce has more traction. So any thoughts on retail and e-commerce in India, if you spent much time on the ground there?
1: You know, I need to spend more time in India this year. I'm going to be doing that. I've talked to a lot of guys who are investing in India. I think that the general prognosis that I have is, you know, India still has a number of uh, hurdles to cross over. They've got a huge population, but I look at it as you know, I am I, I, I'm curious to learn more. and I'm sure that I will be finding some specific opportunities, but you've got a very big country. You've got a, a native group, a huge group of entrepreneurs. I call them largely entrepreneurs by necessity. I mean, they pretty much have to create their own business, but they do and they understand how that works. They understand the hustle and you've got a nation with some challenges. Well, I think that you're going to see in India, some of the stuff you see in the U.S. where there's a lot of different businesses being created to serve a market that perhaps isn't ready for all of them. Um, I'm a big fan of markets that are smaller, that are somewhat ignored. I mean, Laos is an extreme example of that. You know, I think India is going to get a lot of attention. I like to stay away from places that are getting a lot of attention, especially because I just think India has been a bit overhyped. I mean, if you're going to go somewhere that's been hyped, go to China. I still know people who are starting businesses there. and, And again, even in China, there are guys who started a donut store and, you know, they marketed it the right way and they did so well. Now they have 20 donut stores. You're going to have a lot of competition in China, whereas you're not going to have so much in Southeast Asia, I don't think. But I'm not super bullish on uh, on India, and I think that uh, just the, the mere size is, is a concern. I mean, to look at the United States, the most competitive market for entrepreneurship on earth. Meanwhile, you can take one of those ideas that's being done in the United States and that, that 50 people are fighting over, take it and apply it in Vietnam. And maybe you'll have two or three competitors, like in the food delivery space. But there are other spaces where there's no competitors, and so you know, do I want to, you know, have a five thousand dollar a month apartment in San Francisco, hire staff for six, seven thousand dollars a month in San Francisco, or go to Vietnam, slash those costs by ninety percent, and you know, have a market that, by the way, is speaking more and more English, more and more middle class, more and more credit cards. They opened McDonald's, people went crazy. You know, I like that. You don't have that in India.
0: What about more passive opportunities internationally? So, you know, things like stock markets, uh, attractive yields. I guess uh, attractive yields, considering the risk you're going to be taking on in terms of either interest rates for money market accounts or, or maybe a bonds market. So, what kind of passive opportunities in specific countries are you looking at and saying, that's interesting? I, I like that.
1: Well, I, th- I was listening to something with Jim Rogers yesterday, who um, was talking about the Cyprus stock market collapsing by 98%. I mean I think that if someone's younger and more adventurous they should do some of that stuff. You know, I'm presenting certain opportunities that I'm doing a due diligence on for our members about for example investing in, you know, rice futures, like actual on the ground rice futures. I mean there's a, a guy I know, is a friend of mine who's making 80 and 90% returns just buying and selling rice in Southeast Asia, buying it, you know, in May and selling in September for example. You know, I'm a big fan of agricultural property and there are opportunities where you can buy you know, on some islands for, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars get an acre or two. It's a, it's a turnkey system. You know, if you have a little bit more money, you could, you know, set up your own agricultural operation. I like the yields on that. And I like this store of value.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but when you say purchasing an island, do you mean purchasing are you talking about purchasing an entire island for? No. For, okay, you're talking about buying real estate on an island to use in a commercial enterprise or I'm a, saying, an agricultural enterprise.
1: Right. I'm saying okay. that there are opportunities on on islands that produce things like uh, you know tropical fruits, Caribbean, South Pacific, whatever, where people come in and they get parcels of land, and you can get freehold title to you know part of that land, and as part of a whole operation where they're actually doing the work. You know, and then on the larger scale, you can go to places like Nicaragua, which I'm a big fan of. We're having a, a conference there in November. And and maybe you could, you know, get a bigger agriculture operation if you wanted to manage it yourself. I think agriculture will be a big thing. You know, Jim Rogers, who I mentioned, is a big believer in that because of the store of value against declining US dollar, against I mean, just look at all of the emerging world. I mean, they're gonna need more food. And yet what are we doing with arable land? It's it's going down. So that's an opportunity. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of, of banking offshore uh, as well. And there are opportunities there to make higher interest. How much worse can you get than 0.1% in the United <laughs> States? You know, you walk in one of these banks and they, uh, I mean, it's like, you might as well pay them, which by the way, is happening in Europe now.
0: It's It's a rough time for savers. Where, specifically, what currencies, I guess, yeah, what currencies do you like to be in in terms of the stability of the underlying government, but also the yields you're getting uh, relative to the stability. So if maybe your top two currencies, were if you had a lot of money you wanted to put in there to diversify your risk against you know, potentially the decline of the dollar, but also be able to get a decent yield, what two specific currencies would you look at?
1: You know, I'm still bullish on on the uh, the Chinese spread. Maybe uh, people can argue that government's not stable, but I, I like kind of what I would call a relative stability of, of mm-hmm. that government, including the fact that you know, they're not going to kowtow to the United States. So they're not going to let the United States tell them to not be the reserve currency. They're going to keep doing what they want. I am a fan of the rem- Maybe. You can see, um, you know, there's some decent yields around the world on uh, rem- Maybe accounts, at least, you know, temporarily. You know, you know, I'm still somewhat bullish on Swiss francs. I've been talking to banker friends of mine who still think, I mean, it's, it's probably as good as you're going to get in Europe. You've got a pretty stable government. They have devalued that franc to a certain extent. But you know, I also think that um, you're going to see a comeback in the Canadian dollar. I'm not quite so keen right now on, on like New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand dollar. I mean, the yield there is probably the highest in the developed world. But uh, I, mean, I think Canada, Switzerland, and uh, you know, I'm a fan of China. Um, you know, there's obviously the talk of can you play the Chinese for maybe by just buying Hong Kong dollars, which trade at par to the U.S. dollar, and you know, waiting for them just to say just to drop the dollar and adopt the maybe at hopefully an appreciative conversion. I'm not so sure about that. Um, you know, if you have U.S. dollars, it's probably not a bad thing just to exchange some of those into Hong Kong dollars. And the one I also didn't mention was uh, Singapore. I also uh, do hold Singapore dollars and very stable governments. Uh, so I'm a fan of, of those four, basically.
0: Great specific uh, recommendations. I'd love to get your thoughts on two things in closing. Uh, first, and I think I have a, you know, I <laughs> I think most people listening probably have a good sense of, of where this, you're going to go with this answer. Uh, but specifically in the next 10 years, where do you see the U.S. going in terms of what's the outlook for the U.S. in the next decade?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, for 40 or 50 years, people have been talking about things that are going to be happening in the United States. I mean, it's hard to... Predict exactly what's going to happen in the United States because the government has so many things in place to manipulate the numbers, whether it's unemployment numbers, whether it's any kind of numbers. I mean just look at some of the disparity in the real numbers versus the numbers they claim, whether it's debt, whether it's unemployment, whether it's inflation. I mean real inflation last month, 6.1 percent, not the 2 percent they claim. So, you know, it's, it, for me, I have to be a little bit pragmatic and say it's hard to, to say that the United States is going to uh, totally collapse because they have a big house of cards going. When does that collapse? In the next 10 years, I mean, I think it's going to be harder and harder for successful people. We talked about savers. You cannot make a living saving any money. It's impossible. And so what's that doing? It's forcing the average person into uh, risk investments in, you know, things like U.S. equities, you know, debt, things that aren't even yielding that great, things that the average investor hasn't really made much from in the last 10 years when you look at it in in the grand scheme of things. The problem with the United States that I see, the biggest problem is people in the United States are largely, have been brainwashed by the government. I mean, no other country do I go to that more people are insistent on saying this is the best place on earth. And so what does that mean? It means the average person doesn't want to listen to what, you know, something like what I'm saying, where I talk about you know investing in real estate overseas or moving your business overseas or banking overseas or you know investing in you know fruit plantations overseas you know for huge yields and so those people they're not going to make any money they're going to be forced into risk you know stuff that doesn't work i think you're going to have a huge uh, not only loss of wealth but you're also going to have some government confiscation of wealth i mean retirement accounts are the last untapped you know huge sum of money in the united states and look what what the government's doing right now. They have the MIRA program, you know, where you can invest your money into, you know, government debt at tiny, tiny yields. When you do that, you're actually going backwards. But I think that you're going to see things like the government forcing more people to invest in government debt to prop up the system. They're going to play on people's patriotism. And lastly, I think that they're going to basically ring fence any money in the United States inside the United States. Right now, we're just a couple days away from the full implementation of FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. This is basically a law that says every government and every financial institution on earth is the unpaid tattletale to the IRS. If they don't like it, the U.S. government will tax 30 percent of all of their U.S. source income that flows through the United States. And so you've seen entire countries shut out every American from their banking system. What does that do? Well, it's basically a way of saying we have capital controls to keep money in the country without actually saying we have capital controls. So – I think that if you want to start a business elsewhere and be prosperous and be successful and and, and actually, you know, have a high chance of success rather than the low chance of success that's in the U.S., you need to do it now because, uh, I mean, they're already doing things to keep money and people in the country. Ten years from now, they'll just have that much more momentum, that much more political will to go after the quote-unquote tax evaders and the evil expatriates. It really is the snowball rolling down the hill.
0: You know, you talked about capital controls. Would love to hear what you think about Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, with as it gets harder to move money internationally for U.S. citizens, obviously, Bitcoin has some real big advantages there because it's, you know, it's so easy to move around. It's not constrained. Uh, there's, it's decentralized. But obviously, there's some big question marks with Bitcoin, volatility being one of them. You know, how large of a role do you think Bitcoin is going to play in international finance and business going forward?
1: You know, I'm not a Bitcoin expert, and as a guy who is you know very libertarian, I appreciate the concept of it. I'm also a pragmatist. I say, look, it's a currency. I don't want to hold all my money in U.S. dollars, and I don't want to hold all my money in bitcoins. So I think it's a hedge, it's a good strategy. Am I putting every dollar I have into Bitcoin? I'm not, and you know I certainly think there is you know plenty of volatility. I think that greater adoption of Bitcoin, you know, is coming. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people who are coming into the adoption, or who are, you know, creating that adoption, are, you know, companies, you know, like Amazon or whatever, who don't really want to hold Bitcoin. They just want to use it as a in and out transaction vehicle. You know, what does that mean for Bitcoin? I think there's a promising future, but I, you know, I'm not sold on using Bitcoin as the is the only way to go at this point.
0: Do you own any? And if you do, what percent of your, what, roughly, what percent of maybe your investment holdings are in Bitcoin?
1: I do. I, I try not to talk about, you know, specific percentages of, you know, my assets. I do own some Bitcoin. It's not, uh, you know, a huge percentage. But, uh, you know, look, I am a guy who I like to divvy things up across lots of different classes. I've invested in businesses throughout my entire life. I mean, I started an $11 million you know broadcasting business when I was a kid and I invested in other stuff. And I think that the greatest percentage of my net worth I ever put into anything was like, you know, seven or eight percent. So I'm not someone who just goes whole hog into anything. That's just my personal you know philosophy. Others who are more adventurous may want to do more. You know, I mean, look, I look at, you know, a number of factors. I I think there is, like I said, a decent future for Bitcoin, especially in the adoption realm. But uh, maybe I'm just a bit old school.
0: Andrew, we'll really appreciate you diving into a lot of this stuff. It's, it's a fascinating topic to me, and I could probably probably sit here and question you for another two or three hours. But for those listening, um, make sure to check out nomadcapitalist.com. Regardless of where you are, if you think, you know, if you're on the same side of things as Andrew in terms of the outlook for international business in, in the United States, or if you're much more skeptical or anywhere in between. Regardless, Andrew's got a great blog over at nomadcapitalist.com, where he writes a lot about the stuff, really interesting topics, as well as his exclusive membership group, where he talks about a lot of these things, including uh, you know, including investment opportunities overseas, offshore corporations, all that kind of stuff. So again, nomadcapitalist.com. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate
1: it. It's great to be with you.
0: That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55 page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private form. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.